0: This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 45 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 21st of November. And Leon, what's on the uh, menu for this week?
1: Well, Gary, we uh, are starting off with a terrific interview a terrific interview with Alex Maley who runs CPA Australia and he's going to be talking to us all about the direction of CPA Australia taking and the changing role of
0: accounting. Absolutely. It, it's fascinating, really. I mean, the CPA has got a global profile. They're all over the world. And, uh, you know, we don't. you sort of look at the CPA sign around, you see around uh, Australia and you don't realise just how big and how important this organisation is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then we got a terrific interview with Steve Kekulis and he gives his view about what the G20 actually does, which ain't much. And his assessment of Australia's contribution to the G20, which is even less.
0: Yeah, I think the consumption of, of uh, Morton Bay bugs at the dinner would probably exceed the value of the, of the uh, deliberations.
1: A- absolutely. But anyway, let's start it off having a chat with Alex Maley. Alex Maley, tell us about the work of CPA Australia. What, guys, what are you guys doing to
2: drive the business forward? Thanks, Leon. Um, look, we're in many ways transforming the brand um, from accounting and, and the technicalities of that, which we're very good at, to being a brand on leadership. So we're a professional body, um, very much focused on reminding people that our members are all about leading businesses in all sectors. And we and we we emblematic of that through our work in the media and integrated marketing.
1: So tell us about what you're doing specifically. I mean, what, what, tell us about some of the uh, initiatives that you're undertaking. Okay,
2: a couple of years ago, um, we were celebrating our 125-year anniversary, and uh, I made the point that I'd like to interview Neil Armstrong as a, as a milestone for the organisation, and was fortunate enough for him to say yes to the one interview of his life entire life and we conducted that interview and uh, we've had over a billion on that interview in both in both viewing audience social media and so on
1: that's on youtube is it
2: Uh, it's not now because there was a period of time where that was going to be available and accessible but that period's over now so we're looking at donating that to the u.s government as a if you like the eagle has landed (laughs) right from australia and from that We were able to commission a program on Channel 9, so I've just finished Series 3, 24 weeks. Conversations in leadership with people from all sectors, uh, whether it's Michael Parkinson from from the media sector, uh, Jeffrey Archer from from writing, right through to all the business leaders that we all talk about, just to engage people back into leadership conversation. So it's very much about getting the brand out in all the sectors and, and showing that we're a very different group than perhaps people have perceived.
0: Does that mean then that the role of the accountant, the, the public accountant, has, has changed dramatically? I,
2: I think the role of all professionals is morphing, given the circumstances of um, you know media, integrated communication and so on. So in many ways, the profession's moved with the times, but it's never publicly shown that it has. And so we feel that as a professional body, it's important that we, we show that change through real-life conversation that happens every day with our members and and our members are in all sectors so whether it's public accounting commerce not-for-profits the arts all the sectors of the world that i'm happy to say are pervaded by our members
1: right so i mean how many members
2: does cpa australia have Currently, we're over 150,000, and so as an organisation in the professional finance space, we're the largest in Australia, and by turnover, third largest globally as an organisation. So we've got a very strong reach. We have offices in 19 parts of the world. So we've got 19 offices globally. We've, this year, giving out 60-year membership certificates for members in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. We're a much bigger and broader and global business than people often know.
1: Fundamental issue with accountants, though, too, is uh, the profession is very much under siege at the moment from technology. For example, uh, outfits like Zero, MyB, and the revenues that accounting accountants are making from your bread and butter processing of accounts is has been pretty flat.
2: Well, not not from our recording. I mean, what what it comes down to is that professions, as they mature move upwards in their roles and, and fundamentally accountants about professional accounting is about professional judgments and resource strategy strategic resource advice and so on. So what we find is that a lot of a lot of the areas of what traditionally was if you like elements of bookkeeping and the and the and the the introductory end of accounting, have either been outsourced or been replaced by software. We're very supportive of that. Many of the roles of our members now are in far more senior posts. I mean, you're looking at organisations now looking at measures around environment, around biodiversity, around all sorts of things, that ultimately we have the skill sets for and we've, we've got to sit atop that and, and be the strategic resource advisor with other experts involved in the process. Doesn't that require accountants to acquire a whole new set of skills? well the set of skills they've got are actually relevant uh, almost generationally because they're around they're around measurement they're around reporting they're around assurance the nature however, of resources under your management in a company these days has broadened. So in what I call the halcyon years when it was just fixed assets, all you needed to worry about was you know the, the the classical tangible asset. but the majority of companies globally are now valued by their intangible assets. So it's the nature of our assurance reporting and measurement that we need to refine slightly to ensure that we stay on top of that process, but it's the core skill of accountants. So whether, whether it is around the issues of environment or whether it is around intangible resources, we have the skill set, but we have to maintain our leadership position. And that's part of the positive challenge that is the profession.
0: And it's now a global economy, and that obviously has taken you out to offshore offices. And the expertise... You know, how does a guy manage the different legal aspects of, say, Singapore versus Korea, say, and Australia?
2: That's a great question. And, and look, I'm happy to say, and I do say this publicly, CPA Australia was in Asia long before it was cool. Um, I have to say we inherited an amazing business on the basis that our predecessors saw the opportunities in Asia. And so we've we've been in Asia for 60 years. In, in not in, in the key parts of Asia and in China for the last 20. Not because we're brilliant now, but because, you know, in the past they had the foresight. The interesting thing about that is, of course, the reason we set up businesses in Asia was the Colombo plan of the early years in Australia saw all these fantastic young people from Singapore, Malaysia, and Hong Kong, and so on, coming here to study. They all became members while being here of CPA went back and formed the beginnings of our offices, which are now fully manned by local staff. And so to your question, it's always an interesting challenge working within different workplace environments, workplace laws. The, the secret to it, I think, is engaging at a communication level that everyone understands within the business you're one business and we trust people's judgment in their markets that they know best around how to manage their affairs in those in those. Organisations, but we have a constant dialogue around that. that. That
0: raises a very interesting point that you have understanding in parts of Asia of the Australian environment and vice versa, don't you? As a result
2: of this, you do, and it's and it and it's a slow burn. Uh, we've publicly been very overt on issues of we we think Australian business is. is really kidding itself if it thinks it's even begun the journey of the Australasian century if that's what they want. Um, and there's still this naivety across Australian business that, you know, if you put an office or land your feet in one of those markets for more than, you know, a year, you're in. That's not so. And we've written many a submission to government of both persuasions. We, we were recorded in the uh, Australian white paper on the Asian century to say this is a long process and you're your first mover advantage doesn't exist over there for very long if that's what you set to achieve and you really have to keep proving yourself and understand our brand in those markets is a second designation so most of our markets they have to uh, compulsorily join their local accounting bodies they are making a choice to buy our product as a second product that's more expensive than the local product and we've got to maintain a value that's hard work and it's constant work why,
1: why is it a uh, a long struggle
2: to establish overseas in Asia? I, I think it's no different to people. My parents migrated to Australia in the 40s, and I think they spent their life trying to integrate to a sense that they felt that they belonged into society. And I think uh, in many ways, second-generation migrants like myself uh, are um, have often sought roles that give them recognition in a marketplace. Um, I, I don't know whether that's some subliminal thing from your history. But, but the, the wonderful thing about the Asian markets is that they are so movable, they are so supple, they are so energy energized, that it's just the nature of them that you have to stay relevant. You have to prove your relevance. And we've been lucky for a long time in Australia geographically, and we've been living off past Glory for quite some time. And whenever I get the opportunity, whether it's speaking to my own children or or speaking to the Australian community at the National Press Club, which I have, is to say that we're only living on past glories in this country and and we have to make some tough decisions and we have to reshape our economy. And it's only that we've provided a a value proposition to Asian markets for this long that we are where we are, but they learn things quickly and they, they do things themselves. So we've got to keep finding our value proposition.
0: Age is very competitive isn't it
2: enormously and and it it puts us to sleep in terms of yeah, we, we don't understand well, the level of competitiveness that's exactly right and and anyone who's thirty five uh and under hasn't really ever in australia if they 've got a say a professional qualification they 've been well employed have no sense of of the potential struggle that can happen in a tough economy in a competitive economy and it's only now that we're starting to see the first cracks in our economy. Uh, and, and and you know, it, it is about making the move before the cracks move into gaping holes.
1: What are the tough decisions we have to make?
2: Well, the tough decisions, I think, uh, you know, when we see, for example, the automotive industry, um, that was obvious to most decent business people a decade ago. We've got to start making the tough decisions before we've got no choice but to make the tough decisions. We've got to start redeploying people and starting to recognise that if we're going to be relevant into the future, we've got to be the knowledge-based economy. We've got to have less debate within the university sector about you know who's the king and who's not. We've got to work together collaboratively as a sector. We've got to have a vision for education. We've got to have a flexible workplace and, and we have to have a massive tax review and we, and we can't wait much longer. We've got something like 128 taxes in Australia, of which about eight account for 90% of the tax revenue. All of these we've talked about, but if we don't address them now, we're going to fall behind. And that's going to be a lot harder to catch up than if we're proactive rather than reactive.
0: We spend, I think, about 10 billion a year on research and about 100 million on commercialisation of the ideas that are producing. How do you see us getting a few more shillings back for the amount we're investing? Well, look, it's my view that
2: many of our great inventors and idea makers end up with American accents. Now, as much as the U.S. economy is broken and at times looks lifeless and like it may never get back on its knees, there is a core belief that a good entrepreneurial idea with some backing will still attract big money. You go to LA at certain times of the year when they're having their debates about new ideas and they just come to life. We don't have that in Australia. I think we still don't have the confidence in ourselves. You know, I can remember in the as a kid watching the Logies and watching this desperate need to bring out Americans who might have been past their best and, and make that the mark of what made our Logies relevant. You know, that pervades our economy to this day. And we have to be far more confident of ourselves that we can build the idea, execute it and commercialise it.
1: One final question. What would you tell someone who is studying accounting and planning to go into the accounting industry? What would be your advice to them?
2: I guess it would be the advice that the one thing about the accounting profession is I joined because my sister told me to become an accountant. When I asked her what that was, she said, I don't know, but they all do well. That was literally my career decision moment. Um, The one thing I can say to young people is that an accounting qualification makes you relevant in every sector. I have never, ever been a professional accountant, but the core skill set that I have gained through that study process has given me the opportunity to be a leader in multiple fields. If you want to be a leader, if you aspire to do great things, this is the most relevant qualification I could suggest to you. I have seven kids. I'd have them all do accounting if I had my way. And I really believe in this in this journey. I really believe that if you qualify yourself to be relevant globally, it's up to you what you do with that qualification.
0: Alex Maley, thank you very much for your time. And that was a great interview. So now Stephen Kakulis. Stephen Cullis, what's your assessment of the G20 Growth Pledge?
3: Look, it's a worthy objective. I think G20 uh, has an important role to play. It brings the leaders together, the finance ministers together, and of course behind the scenes there's all the bureaucrats working hard to coordinate economic policy. So I think the concept's a very, very good one. I think if it can feed in towards lower trade barriers uh, managing the financial system, making sure that the tax treatment of uh, big multinational firms is the same across all countries then that's that 's the good thing about the g20 and I think there 's been um, some progress and uh, changes quite frankly on that on those sort of fronts over the last five or six years since the g20 s really got its oomph. now for the one that was held in brisbane uh, look the, the the main thing to come out of that seems to be focusing on um, the 2% stronger growth over the course of the next five years from the world economy with all the G20 members aiming to grow their economy faster. But frankly, it's it's a nice objective. We don't know the base from which that extra 2% is being added to. Um, and I think the proof is in the pudding of the fact that the IMF, the World Bank, the big global uh, investment banks haven't revise their forecast for global GDP any higher uh, on the back of the G20. So it's more a let's try to grow our economies type uh, communique from uh, the G20 rather than there being uh, some items specifically which will lead to stronger economic growth and more jobs in the world economy.
1: Uh, The Abbott government's commitments seem to be tied up in the Senate.
3: Yes, well, the, the the funny thing about the Abbott government's commitments is that they've already been announced. You know, it, it's it's paper in leave. It's getting rid of red tape. It's uh, getting rid of the carbon tax and mining tax. So in a sense, they're not doing anything more than they've already done to grow the economy. And I know even too that the last the last night, RBA Governor Glenn Stevens gave a speech about about the economic outlook, and he was arguably a little bit more um, cautious about the downside that he's been for some time. So. You know, even though the G20 and the Abbott government's got some worthy policy objectives and going for growth, yes, as an economist, I love a stronger economy rather than the alternative of a weaker economy. But to me, I just can't see quite where Australia's policy settings are going to deliver that extra couple of percent GDP over the course of the next five years.
1: But, I mean, the issue is, I mean, if you have, say, employment reform, as they put it, uh, holed up in the Senate... So the changes to say people getting the doll, and uh, that's that's tied up in the Senate. That's not going to get through. And then you've got other promises like the uh, paid parental leave scheme. No one knows if that's ever going to get up. What contribution can Australia make to the G20 contribution?
3: Yeah, well, not not much. And and this is the this is the problem i think that mr hockey um, and mr abbott have confronted uh since they've been in power i i don't understand why they didn't anticipate that the senate might be a difficult beast to tame and uh, to get this you know often controversial legislation through that i would have thought they'd have been having a lot more cups of tea with the uh, minor parties in the senate just to make sure that they could negotiate issues and um, as we saw in the previous government where the hung parliament was in the house of representatives this time it's in the senate if, if you like um, and one of the issues there is that it's about compromise it's about negotiation to get your agenda through you've got to give a little bit back and uh, there's certainly been precious little of that coming from uh, mr abbott at this stage so what we've got is this um, roadblock if you like in the senate of uh, of the government's policy agenda so it's coming back to other parts of the economy to grow and to be honest when we look at what's happening to commodity prices what's happening to the global economy uh, it's not as good as it was even three months ago so I dare say that the downside risks to our economy are not only being constrained by the lack of um, Fiscal policy reform in the in the Senate, but also from global conditions which are outside our control.
1: Which would mean that Australia would make zero contribution to the G20 commitments.
3: Well, <laughs> next to nothing. Yes, yeah, right. I, I, it, it won't be uh, it won't be a tangible change, and um, the infrastructure spending, these sorts of things, all worthy objectives. They are absolutely worthy objectives. However, uh, when it comes to crunching the numbers on stronger growth, they're not going to change the bottom line because there are too many other moving parts in the economy.
1: Now, uh, of course, the G20 commitments come at a very unfortunate time for the markets. I mean, the markets are, aren't aren't performing that well at the moment globally, and uh, I don't see any sort of acknowledgement by business that it's gonna that their commitments gonna lift their growth
3: indeed we've got this problematic uh, circumstance right now where obviously the feds finished its quantitative easing is now looking to maybe hike interest rates but that's still a very big maybe uh, we saw you know quite radical things occurring in japan with its um additional stimulus a, a week or two ago and of course we've now got the election coming up for mr abe which Goodness knows what that's going to throw up in terms of policy change. But the Japanese economy has just been confirmed to had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP which means the recession. Yeah, so yeah. that's bad news for the world economy. And China's still slowing. They've got house prices falling you know, quite sharply now. And that's really eroding confidence in their financial sector, their banking sector. And it's a big threat for the global economy and for Australia. Uh, and it's one reason why I think iron ore prices are in free fall.
1: So what impact will the G20 meeting have on the global economy?
3: I'm afraid to say not much. I think it's going to be doing what it would have done anyway. Uh, And the issues for the G20 would have been, I think, better framed more around tax compliance issues, more around freer trade. While Australia is negotiating its free trade agreements, uh, and that's fine, that's excellent, Um, we need to have a more... Liberal trade policy. We need to make sure that the big companies are paying their fair share of tax, because of course, if the governments get more tax, um, they've got money to do stuff with. They can they can either redistribute it through lower taxes to individuals, or they can spend it elsewhere in the economy. Um, so more tax revenue does uh, from the big companies, arguably, does uh, allow the governments to be a lot more flexible. So I dare say that um, when the dust does finally settle over the next few months on on the G20 and we start looking into the hard policy decisions that are taken from around the world, it won't be much change at all.
1: So, So what's your outlook for the global economy then over the next 12
3: months? the next 12 months, I'm getting a little bit more concerned, to be honest. Uh, as I said, the US the US is fine. I think the US has got some self-sustaining growth. Uh, the low energy prices are a net benefit to the US economy. So the fact we've got oil at these incredibly low levels uh, in terms of price is, is good for the US. It's going to be growing. But then you look at the other three big engines of the um, world economy, the Eurozone, dreadful news. Even though the GDP numbers there weren't quite as bad, they're hardly strong. You know, 0.2% for quarterly GDP is dreadful after a negative quarter to boot. So the Eurozone's got huge problems. They're not going to be recovering and picking up anytime soon. We mentioned Japan being problematic back in recession and with very few signs of growth. The election's going to be you know, potentially a spanner in the works for business confidence in in Japan and then China which we touched on the falling property prices but they've also had a run of you know quite weak data in terms of retail sales industrial production uh, and fixed asset investment so if you look at the Chinese data for the last uh, couple of months it's also slowing so i think the good news in the us is going to be countered by you know at best mediocre news elsewhere if not something worse Uh, And so that you add it all up and you think the global economy um, is probably got some downside risks. I think you just have to look at the government bond markets to look at these incredibly low yields to see where financial markets are viewing the uh, risks to the economy and inflation, or should we call it disinflation, in 2015. It's going to be a really tough year globally.
1: And you don't see that sort of picking up for some time?
3: No, I think, well. The the thing that we're sort of looking for would be uh, policy stimulus again. Will the ECB be um, ramping up its bond-buying program to try to you know, effectively quantitative easing? It's slightly different than the US one because it's got so many member states, but basically it's quantitative easing. See if they ramp that up. That would be useful for stimulus. We saw the um, uh, Japanese do some more a, a week or two ago. and that. But the, the, the big one, the big one in terms of a policy change to give me some optimism to get rid of my pessimism would be for the Chinese authorities to say that they've got to do something about the slowing in their economy. So what that format takes, whether it's the exchange rate that they um, move a little bit more, whether it's uh, the, some of the interest rates that they measure, or it's just the command, we will build more stuff, Um, and that stimulates their economy, a bit like the GFC a few years ago remains to be seen. Although having said that, yeah, they're very well aware of some of the imbalances in the property market in their economy. Maybe they're willing to tolerate a year of weaker growth um, uh, to just sort of cleanse their economy of these imbalances. If they do that, then the world economy in Australia is gonna have a really tough year in 2015.
1: Uh, Next year's not gonna look that good.
3: I don't think so. The risks risks are skewed to the downside. Uh, very much so. And, uh, yeah, as I said, the policy stimulus is important. The Fed will be very, very, uh, important for the global economy and global exchange rates. And, um, you know, while the market's now, you know, pricing in, you know, the first rate hike sometime around June, July, August, uh, next year, that could easily be pushed back if there's any disappointment in, you know, what looks to be stronger, uh, news more recently. But the critical issue is just how uh, robust the US will be, whether the Eurozone can grow again and whether China's going to be you know, moving back more towards 7 plus GDP rather than slipping below 7, which looks highly likely.
1: And uh, there's nothing that the G20 can do that's going to change that?
3: I don't think the g it's not that G20 is domain to do that, it's individual policymakers and individual countries to do their bit to, to stimulate their economies or to sustain some growth and, and uh, while some of the G20 stuff on, um, on freer trade and more infrastructure spending are absolutely vital. I don't think they're big enough alone to get this extra couple of percent on global GDP. I think there's some, there has to be something else. It's either more policy stimulus, it's either a, an injection of confidence somehow into the weakest parts of the global economy, and I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. The ECB seems hamstrung. You know, the, the politicians in the Eurozone seem to be caught in a corner about how to grow the European economies again.
1: Sue coolers. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, uh, it just tells us uh, that, uh, well, two things. It tells us the G20 hasn't achieved much. It also tells us Australia's contribution is absolutely zip. But it also tells us that um, 2015 is going to be a very, very tough year for the global economy.
0: And and pretty tough around here. I mean, we've still got uh, redundancies happening, and where's where's Iron ore down around seventy three? It's uh, it's gone right down. It's gone right down. And so it, it's going to get worse. Interesting. Twiggy Forest fortune's gone from $6 billion to $2 billion. So now, Leon, um, the news. Well, Gary, uh, first of all, Japan's economy has fallen into recession
1: after contracting 0.4% in the September quarter. That was the second straight quarter of contraction. And it's a huge blow to Tokyo's bid to turn around years of laggard growth. The country's gross domestic product shrank uh, 0.4%, as I said, or an annualised rate of 1.6% and underscoring how an April tax rise dented growth and weighed in on the chance of a second levy hike next year. And as a result, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has called a snap election to seek a mandate for his decision to delay a further sales tax increase that had been planned for next year. Yeah, Japan's got a lot of problems, hasn't it? And so does China, because China has got falling house prices. The average price of new homes in 70 Chinese cities continued to fall for the sixth straight month in October and on a month-over-month basis prices in October slipped 0.8% and on a year-over-year basis the average price of new homes declined 2.5% and investors frankly are concerned that a big slump in the property market in China could drag down growth in the world's second biggest economy because Gary, according to analysts real estate accounts for nearly a quarter one quarter of Chinese GDP when you take into account construction Cement, steel, chemicals, furniture, and all the other related industries.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this is the effect of a middle class that has grown like asparagus, it has absolutely grown up terribly quickly, and uh, they all want property. And as we discussed with Stephen Cools, the G20 leaders'
1: summit in Brisbane concluded on Sunday with a pledge to collectively boost growth by 2.1% over the current trajectory by 2018, which would add 2 trillion US to global activity. And each G20 member provides A list of more than 800 policies and programs they plan to put in place to create millions of jobs. Now Australia's pledges, as we discussed with Cool Coolas, came largely from the 2014-15 budget, much of which is being blocked in the Senate. And that also comes this week as the uh, government's uh, financial changes to Labor's financial advice laws have been completely demolished following a Senate revolt which fragmented the Palmer United Party and further complicated the coalition's ability to pass legislation. It was a coup engineered by Labor Senator Sam Dastyari, Independent Senator Nick Xenophon, and the renegade Palmer United Party Senator Jackie Lambie
0: and the Australian Motoring Enthusiast Party Ricky Muir. And they broke ranks with Palmer. Uh, two things I would say. The decision, Jackie Lambie, will her stocks will rise in Tasmania. Uh, the other one, more importantly, is Sam Dastyari's looks like a real comer. He, he, is, he is certainly one to watch.
1: Now, and I might add that while Tony Abbott was eating Morden Bay bugs with uh, world leaders in Brisbane on Saturday, Sam Dastyari had flown down to Bernie to talk to Jackie Lambie.
0: Yonder lay the, the ruination of uh, Mar- Marius Gorman's um, plans. That's right, that's right.
1: Now, on the post side for the government, China's President Xi Jinping has signed the most ambitious Free Trade Agreement, Uh, since since his country committed to the World Trade Organisations, it promised billions of dollars in new markets for Australian exporters, and under the deal worth at least $18 billion, 85% of all Australian exports will enter China tariff-free. Now, it's important, Gary, because Australia is the most China-dependent developed economy in the world, and exports there account for 5.3% of gross domestic port products. And two way trade reaches one hundred and fifty billion in twenty thirteen. And a last minute breakthrough by Trade Minister Andrew Robb will give Australian dairy farmers tariff free access within four years to China's enormously lucrative infant formula market, minus any of the safeguard caps that currently restrict competitors from New Zealand. Winemakers selling more than two hundred million dollars worth of goods to China every year, despite tariffs between forty and thirty percent, will see tariffs eliminated over forty years. Tariffs on horticultural products, seafood and other goods, accounting for ninety. 3% 3% of Australian exports by value will be reduced to zero by 2019. Shock tariffs recently imposed on Australian coal will be removed over two years. Now the Abbott government in return has given ground on Labour agreeing to a new case-by-case mechanism for Chinese investors to apply to bring in workers at, at Australian wage rates in areas of skill shortage. Private Chinese investors will have foreign investment review threshold increase to a billion dollars in line with Australian, Australia's other FTAs. But the government's held its ground on all other investments from political Politically sensitive state-owned enterprise which will continue to be subject to automatic foreign investment review, and this and other outstanding questions, most notably Australian sugar, will be reviewed within three years. But you know, the FTA highlight economic o- opportunities that the U.S. can't man- match, with China already buying nine times the value of Australian goods exports as the U.S.
0: The the one wild card in this, I think, is that if they the bringing Chinese labour, and that's going to uh, really put a burr in the union saddles.
1: Well, yeah, but look, it's going to be, it's going to be huge. And, uh, of course, uh, tourism and hospitality firms will be able to open hotels. Law firms will be able to service clients directly from special Shanghai Zone headquarters. And Australian universities will be able to market directly to Chinese students. And Australia's giant financial services companies, including ANZ and AIG, have received a booth with what appears to be preferential access not enjoyed by competitors in the US and Europe. And also, Tony Abbott plans to have an FTA with India in a year's time. And I might add, uh, whilst trade with China is 150 billion, it's only 15 billion with India.
0: So there's a, bit, a lot of headroom left in the Indian well,
1: deal. Well, there's a, there's a lot of upside.
0: You have to you have to wonder why China's been quite so generous, because this free trade agreement is is way more generous than any they've written before.
1: That's right, that's right. And then the big winners from the trade deals are agriculture, with all tariffs on dairy products phased out of four to eleven years. Tariffs on wine over four years, tariffs on beef gone within nine years, and resources sector with the removal of tariffs on all resources and energy products, including iron ore, gold, coking coal, removal of tariffs on non-coking coal over two years, and removal of tariffs on pharmaceuticals over four years. And... Big winners, too, are services with Australian law firms able to establish commercial associations with China's law firms in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. A further, 77 institutions adding to an existing 105 education, Australian education providers that can take overseas students. And provision to renovate and operate whole Australian-owned restaurants and uh, hotels in China. And also financial services with insurance companies getting access to China's third-party liability Mocha Beagle Party. And the waiting period for Australian banks to engage in local currency, remimbi. Come from three years to one year.
0: Yeah, I, the mo- the motor insurance is going to be interesting. I, I I've been in uh, Chinese traffic. It's uh, uh, it's some something else. It's uh, it's, you've got to have faith in them when when you when you're in Chinese. I, I pray a lot.
1: That's right now. But interestingly enough, Gary, during the week, global property developer China's Greenland Holding Group says it's going to buy Australian beef, dairy, and wine companies for export to mainland China, and it's negotiating to buy major Australian ag- agri- Agriculture companies. Now, Greenland's part is a part-stained owned entity, which last year had global revenues of more than 50 billion. And the listed Freedom Foods Group and its controlling shareholder, the Parrot Group, have struck a landmark deal with China's New Hope Group that will see tens of millions of dollars invested in Australian dairy farms. Now, at the same time, Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Glenn Stevens told a committee for economic development of Australia dinner that interest rates are likely to stay low for years until non mining business have the courage to invest again, he says that there's little danger of the economy overheating that would to raise rates above the current two point five percent because mining investment and income growth is stalling, and household debt and unemployment right unemployment is rising.
0: I have to say that I find very little in the current government that 's aimed at improving um, economic activity
1: no, absolutely, and uh, listen you know the latest um, Stats show that consumers are getting gloomy about their household um, finances. Are, a key confidence measure declined by 1.6% in the year week ending November 16. And the price of key Australian export iron ore has plunged below $75 a tonne for the first time since 2009. And at the last, the last time I read it, it was trading at $72 a tonne. Iron ore has had 47% wiped off its value since 2015, in 2015. That's huge. And the uh, latest Westpac Melbourne Institute-leading uh, institute indicates the likely pace of economic activity three to nine months into the future, is showing us that economic growth will remain below trend in the first half of 2015. So it fits in with what Kakoulos was saying, next year's going to be tough. And uh, the final bit of news is that uh, Pacific Brands is selling part of its brand collective business in three separate transactions that's going to net at $39 million to pay off debt. And the football, footwear and apparel categories of the brand collective business, which include Volley, Hush Puppies and Clark's brand, are going to be sold to Australian private equity firm Anchorage, part of Capital Partners. The group's sport brands, Dunlop and Sludger, will be sold to IBML, which is a division of UK Sports Direct International, which already owns brands outside Australia and New Zealand. And finally, the sports assets related to Pacific Brand sport business, included the Everlast Equipment, Equipment will be sold to Design Works, which is a division of ASX-listed company, the PASS Group. And the PASS Group's going to licence Dunlop's, Lezenger and the Everlast brands from the IBNL.
0: good old Leon. And uh, that's the news for this week.
1: That's right. And next week, we're going to have a terrific interview with Scott Schober in the US. He's the CEO of Berkeley Veritronic Systems. He's going to be talking to us all
0: about cybercrime. Very interesting it is, too. That's right. And worry, because it's growing.
1: That's right. So in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.